have your Bible. Today we are going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as we walk into Mark chapter 6. So maybe you will turn there and as you do so, would you, would you do so prayerfully with me? Lord Jesus, we would just want to invite you to, to have your way, to speak freely to us, Lord, to humble to cause us to realize our absolute need of you. Lord, to receive from you today. So we pray, we ask that you might be heard. May I, Lord, be simply a conduit for you. And may nothing I say or do today hinder that. And Lord, I pray that nothing within these hearers, Lord, would hinder their experience of you. I ask this by the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, would you um, stand with me? Let's read it together. Right at the top. Now he went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense in him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Can be seated. I'm going to lead us off with a question this morning. Two questions, really, but the first one being this Does God want to do a work? Does He want to do a mighty work among us? Do you believe that God wants to do a mighty work among us? Nah, I don't know. Maybe not us, right? We're this church is we've we've passed our prime, right? We um, after all, what's our median age here at the church? Forty or something? Is is that what determines what God does a mighty work in, or is it where your church is at, or the culture of your church, or the ancestry or convictions? What determines whether or not God does a mighty work in your midst? Well, the problem is certainly not the willingness of God. You say, does God want to do? Yeah, He does. In fact, we can see it in the text we read today. That's, this is a, a view in miniature of what, and what Jesus does in going to His hometown. 
of really the big picture of what God has done for the whole world, right? Because what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So certainly, yes, God is willing. If he wasn't willing, he never would have sent his son, right, to us. So maybe the question is not, is God, does God want to do a mighty work, but will God do a mighty work? Will the world that God has sent his son to receive him? Will his hometown, Nazareth, will they experience the power of Jesus Christ? Will we, you and I, see him work again among us and in us and keep working? There is an obstacle to the working of God. There is something that impedes God from working among us. And our goal today is to see what that is. So, okay, I I got a clear picture. This impedes God from working in my life, from working in our church. To know it, okay? And then to ask ourselves, is that obstacle present in me? Because if it's present in me, then it's also thereby present in us collectively as a church. And it's true to say that our hearts are not unlike those fields out there. And you people who, you guys who work in the fields out there, you know what I'm talking about. Because the moment you think you've removed every last rock from your field, what happens? Right? There's another one. And that's the way our, our hearts are too. Just when you think you've cleaned yourself up. So don't think that, well, this would never apply to us or never apply to me. The question is, what will we do when it manifests itself? So, Let's see what happened in Nazareth, okay? And let's take heed, okay? The passage begins with Jesus leaving the region he's been working in, which if you've been following with us, he's been in Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee. And he has a great following, right? Great crowds of people seem to hover wherever Jesus goes. But now he goes and leaves that area and he goes back to his hometown. You like going back home? Feel good to go back home? Say, what's Jesus doing here? Well, why do you think he went home? You need a little respite, vacation? Want to connect again? Well, remember that the purpose of his ministry was not defined by wherever the largest crowds were or how the, the, where the biggest receptions were. That's not where Jesus determined where he was going to go. But back in chapter 1, he said, okay, this is when Jesus was on high demand and his disciples were like, hey, you need to come because people are looking for you. And what did he tell them? He said, no, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So Jesus' priority was the gospel message, not to set up some healing hospital here and get people all to come to him. No, his purpose was so that all would hear the gospel message. What was the gospel message? Well, it was him. He was the gospel message. So Nazareth is no exception to the many villages that Jesus might have visited, but of course it holds a special place for him, right? Um, now, is Nazareth one of those places that, uh, that was easy to find on the map? No, not really, not in Jesus' day. It's known today, but the only reason it ever became significant in history is because Jesus grew up there. Otherwise, it was just another little small town. 
At best, at best, people say it was maybe no more than 500 people. It was on a hillside. And uh, it's not unreasonable to think that most of the people in Nazareth were somehow related to Jesus. You say, really? Well, let me ask you this. How many people in Kirkhoven are related somehow to somebody else in Kirkhoven? So it's still true today. It was very much true back then. Um, remember, this is where this is the town of Joseph and Mary, right? So his earthly parents. It's where they settled after Jesus, um, after they returned from their flight to Egypt. Remember there, when they escaped there? Now they've come back and they've raised their family there. They had other sons and daughters together. Um, therefore, it was a special place for the Lord Jesus, even in the same way that Kirkhoven is a very special place for some of your children, right? It, it's dear to their heart. They love coming back home. So he knows and he loves the people there. And they know him. And they love him. So, now according to what we know about Palestine, of ancient Israel in that day, somebody noted this. He said, Jewish families, they lived in what they called insulas. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but this is what they referred to it as called an insula. It's not suburban neighborhoods like Americans do. Okay? It says, when a son married, what he would do was add on to his father's house, okay? who had previously added on to his father's house. So you see the progression here. And so it says it was not uncommon for one family to occupy a small village. One family. It's very likely that when Jesus came to visit his home, many of Jesus' uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, and for sure we know his brothers and sisters, because Mark mentions them, would have been living in Nazareth as well. So by now... The people who are in Nazareth, they have heard the rumors about their hometown boy, okay, what he's been up to, things he has taught, things he has done. And so there's this heightened excitement that he is now coming back with them. And notice that he comes with his entourage, right? The disciples are following him. And that meant that he was a rabbi. Rabbis were the ones who had disciples behind them. So they would have seen that, noted that. But as we have said, Jesus did not come for a vacation. He has come on mission. He will not deprive his hometown people, people he loves, from hearing the truth. And listen, Jesus wanted to do a great work there. So verse 2, right? And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in their synagogue. Now Jesus has in Capernaum, has kind of left the synagogue behind because they didn't really welcome him there anymore. But now going back home, in order to avoid any unnecessary offense and for nobody to get the wrong idea about him and not hear him, he goes and does what's customary. Waits for the Sabbath day and he goes in to the synagogue and he begins to teach. And The reading that he does that day and the sermon which followed it is not recorded here in Mark. But if you want to, you can read it in Luke chapter 4. Now, some people think that's a separate occasion. I think it might have been the same one. But what Mark does, he says, he focuses on the reaction to Jesus. So listen to this, okay, right? Notice this at the end of verse 2. And many who heard him were astonished. Now, we're used to that because when people hear Jesus and the way he taught, they are amazed. Okay, so we're expecting that much. 
And then they say, where did this man get these things? Okay. And this is the start of a series. If you notice, there are five questions, one right after the other, that the crowd here asks. And notice this, okay? These are not questions of inquiry, that they're not trying to find something out, right? Like, oh, Jesus, can you tell us more? Or will you come back next week? But, okay, they're not questions that are looking for answers, in other words. They're questions that are more like statements. And with each passing question, their minds are being made up of how they are processing Jesus. Okay, and what you're going to see is their heart is more clearly revealed with every question. Because at first you think, well, this is good. They seem to be receiving him. It's very positive. They're astonished at him. But the question is, where did this man get these things, is what they say. And what is this wisdom given to him? So they get it. They get it that he speaks with wisdom and it's different. That he speaks with authority and it's, this is something like we haven't heard before. Okay. And now the third question, they say, well, look at this now. How are such mighty works done by his hands? What we begin to see is these aren't questions of awe-filled amazement about Jesus, but rather this is an astonishment of skepticism. How did his hands do what we've heard? Notice the fourth question. This begins to crystallize even more, right? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Now, they're not thinking less about Jesus because of the fact that his trade was as carpenter. Okay? Manual labor was not looked down upon by the Jews. Uh, Jesus was a, that word, technon, that's the, the Greek word there for carpenter. And it actually means one who makes or produces usually things of wood, but it could also mean things out of stone or even of metal. So while Jesus likely did work with wood, how we often picture him to be, um, it's also probable that his skills as a technon included masonry work. That is the cutting of stone and laying of stone. Okay? And if you look at Nazareth, you'll kind of see why. Um, it wasn't exactly the location of a surplus of wood, but there was a lot of stone there. And then you consider verses, you begin to think about that. Well, maybe Jesus was a stone cutter. And there's verses that say, like, remember this? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone which is a reference to Jesus. He's that stone. So it kind of makes all the more sense as you get, think of Jesus as a builder. He was a builder. The masonry imagery throughout the New Testament is abundant. Okay, but they're not looking down at him because of his trade. But what the Nazarene crowd was saying is, we know you. We know who you are. And you're, you're just a carpenter. In other words, who do you think you are? Come in here. Who taught you these things? They're saying, we saw you grow up and that no, no rabbi came and took you and trained you. You didn't go to any rabbinic school. What is the strange stuff you're teaching us? And then they say this, right? It's not this the 
son of Mary? Now, you say, well, that's true, right? Well, yes, it is, it is true. He was the son of Mary. But you need to know this. It wasn't customary at all for Jews to refer to someone by the identity of their mother. It was always through the father, okay? So the question is, why didn't they say the son of Joseph? Why, they didn't, why didn't they identify him that way? Well, some think that maybe Joseph had already died by this time. Well, that may be, okay? But then I read John 6.42. You don't have to look there. Just listen. It said, the people were asking a question in John 6.42. It said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? So it kind of leads me to think that Joseph was still alive because there were people who knew him. And that, what I just read there, happens after what you're reading here. By the way, even if Joseph had already died, it still would have been custom to say and identify him as a son of Joseph. So what's going on here? Well, the reason they called him a son of Mary was actually a kind of cheap slam. So disrespect. It insinuated that he was an illegitimate child. Remember, when the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to, be con- you're going to conceive by the Holy Spirit, you know where that happened, right? It was in Nazareth. And of course, you know, um, is it, well, let me ask you, is it hard to believe that Mary's conception was the rumors were not circulated? Oh, right. People would never gossip in small towns, right? That never would happen. No, of course not. But their contempt for Jesus is becoming very obvious, isn't it? Are not his brothers and sisters here with us? Isn't he just one of us? Who does he think he is? As best we can tell from this passage, Jesus had at least four brothers and at least two half-sisters, because it's plural, right? His sisters are not his sisters here with us. Now, of those brothers, we only really come to hear more about two of them, James, who will believe in the Lord Jesus and become a leader in Jerusalem, and Judas, also known as Jude, the writer of the letter called Jude. But at this point, nobody believes in him, not even his house. Okay. So Mark gives us the, the summary reaction to Jesus here at the end of verse 3. Look at this now. And they took offense at him. You say, but wait a minute. But these were people who, who knew Jesus, right? How is it? They, they watched him grow up. And it wasn't like they knew any secrets about Jesus of how he had failed or some inconsistencies in his life that they were like, oh yeah, we really know who you are. No, anyone who knew Jesus knew and would have admired him. So how is it that they, of all people, took offense, literally were scandalized, outraged by him here? Listen now, okay, here's it, here it is. Because familiarity can blind the necessity and demands of faith. Familiarity can blind the demands of faith. Here's the obstacle. Here it is. Jesus was so common to them, so everyday to them, that he could not be otherwise. He would not be otherwise. So the assertion that He was more than the hometown boy, that he was Messiah, the one that they have read about, and every time they've gathered for worship, 
and therefore to be received, they wanted nothing to do with that. Now listen, while it may not be possible for you and I to become overly comfortable with Jesus, like as if he growed up in Kirkoven and you know we know him, that's not possible, but it is very real, and it is very possible, and it is very alarming that we can become so familiar with the words and the person of Jesus and what is talked about in Scripture that we become exactly what Jesus had become to them. Listen, everyday, commonplace, right? Run-of-the-mill. To the point that we may even be agitated and bothered when someone with faith confronts us by their example and their words of stepping out and trusting Jesus. Because faith, my friends, is not just an intellectual pursuit to brush up on in, in groups and in Sunday school every week. Faith is stretching. Faith is acting, right? It is us calling to do, right? To act on Jesus that we say we believe in. Uh, pastor and writer R. Kent Hughes put this way. He said, we must never let our growing familiarity, because that's true, right? That's what discipleship is. That's what we're doing here. We're growing more and more familiar with Jesus. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. We want to be familiar with him. But he said this, never let your growing familiarity rob you of the dazzling wonder and demands of our faith. Faith is demanding. Right? It calls us to do hard things, right? Things where your knees are shaking, like stepping out and knocking on those doors and starting a conversation with someone. Jesus' call always rings out to in the present, not in the past. Not like, well, you followed me then, that's good enough, but follow me. Follow me today. Follow me now. Step out on me now. In other words, discipleship, walking with Jesus, is never on my terms. It's not, well, let me go take care of this first, Lord, and then I'll follow. No. Jesus rejected that. It's now. It's accepting Jesus on his terms. So what does he do? I mean, think of this. He's come home, and I imagine it hurt him. to be looked at skeptically, to be looked at with contempt, to be disrespected. His disciples all there. What does Jesus do? Does he, here's what you and I would do. We'd be like, oh yeah? Oh, you think so? You think I'm nobody? Watch this, right? And we just jump, shock some miracles right at him, right? And they blow out that unbelief. But the response of Jesus starts in verse 4. He says, look at this. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. That was a proverbial statement. In other words, they knew that. They knew words like that because it was true to life. Seems the further you are from home, the more recognized you are for who you really are. And the closer you get there, people want nothing to do with you. It's true of Jeremiah. Read about his story. The town where Jeremiah was from, they said, if you ever come back here and preach to us again, we'll kill you. And then notice verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there. 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Because they could not see him, they would not experience him. You say, oh, man, what could have been? What could have been? How different could the story have been written? But was not. Now, you may think, well, wait a minute. You mean to say that there was something that Jesus was unable to do? He could not do a work there? You mean to tell me that there's something more powerful than Jesus that prevents him from doing it? Listen, you've got to understand this in the whole of Scripture, okay? Jesus, who is God, is omnipotent. You know what that means? It means all-powerful. Jesus is God. God is omnipotent. Jesus is omnipotent. Okay? Hebrews declares he sustains all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus. Okay? He's not omnipotent if the lack of faith here thwarts his purpose. No, listen. He could not because he would not. He will not. As Matthew states, and he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. In other words, Jesus was not compelled to work where he is not welcome. Unbelief comes with, think of it then, an irreplaceable loss that robs us of the experience of true power. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm going, you know what? I don't want to do a single thing here, whether it's a program or a class or an outreach, if it is not done believing and relying on the true power of Jesus Christ. Because it's going to avail to nothing. What's it for? Right? Doesn't Hebrews say, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I just want to think of this way. It's not just another Sunday. It's not just another October. It's not just another ministry. God, forgive us for becoming so familiar with church and life and how we think it should go, that we miss what you're calling us to do. It's radical to trust in Jesus Christ and to take steps of faith on Him. Do you notice how sad a word this this ends with? Verse 6. They marveled because of their unbelief. Did you know within the Gospels there are two things, just two things that marveled Jesus We're used to hearing people get amazed by him, but there were two things that amazed Jesus Christ. One of them was the extent of great faith. Did you know that? Did you know Jesus marveled at faith? The story is told in Matthew chapter 8. You can look it up maybe when you go home. There was a Roman centurion, so not even a Jew, right? And he came to Jesus and he said, If you would but say the word, my servant will be healed. And when Jesus heard this, it says he marveled. He said, there's not even faith like this in all Israel. And guess what? A mighty work was done that day. But there's something else that Jesus marvels at, right? And it's here. The lack of faith. And because of that, right, his hometown, 
People who knew him allowed him to slip through their fingers. And as best we can tell, Jesus never went back to Nazareth. So that leaves a question then, right? What amazes Jesus? What shocks him about you? Is it the extent of great faith? Or is it the terrifying realization of no faith? And that's different from doubt, by the way. Doubt is, I can't believe. Doubt is, I'm struggling to believe. Doubt is what you read about last. Remember when Jairus was on his way back home with Jesus and his daughters died, right? He finds out and he's... Jesus comes and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And he does, right? He stops doubting. Unbelief is, I won't believe. That's different. That's a stubborn, obstinate, I refuse to believe. Does God want to do a mighty work among us and in us? Yes. But will he? Will he? Lord Jesus, we just want to then think about our own life, to think about whether or not we are experiencing you in the present. Am I trusting you today? And what are you calling me to do to reflect that trust? Because my trust should be seen, it should be obvious. And Lord, to be ready then as a church for us to trust you with whatever great endeavor you put in front of us so that we can see the greatness of not our power. What is us? We're nothing without you. But to watch your power at work in us and among us. That is what we want. So God, we come needy and eager to receive from you again. Let us not let you slip through our fingers. We pray this, Lord. We ask this your son's name.